The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. This podcast may contain graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and assault, including rape. These accounts can be triggering, especially for those who have also experienced sexual trauma. If at any point during this podcast, you feel yourself getting triggered, we suggest taking a break and taking care of yourself before continuing. But we do ask that you continue if you are able. These conversations can be mentally and emotionally taxing, but they are so important to have. Welcome to another episode of the Enough Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kendra Sheets. I am your other host, Rich Gill. And today we are here with our guest, Danny Wolf. Uh, Danny, would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself and talk kind of about how you fit into music and how it fits into you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, my name is Danny Wolf. I've been playing music since, well, I guess I started singing in church when I was a kid. My mom was very uh, supportive about it. We'd sing in the car. And uh, when I turned about 17, uh, the summer before my senior year of high school, my dad told my mom to go buy me a guitar so I could write songs. And then six months later, I was playing in a punk rock band and we had a full set of original songs. And I never, never stopped playing. I mean, took a break during COVID, of course. I've played in tons of bands. One of that was on some pretty big labels, Small Towns Burn a Little Slower. Um, I was just a singer in that band. We did some really big tours, played some big festivals. Yeah, we toured for almost four years, like at least half the year. I feel like felt like we were touring. And then after that band disbanded, I started a band with some people that remember me in uh, Ottumwa, Iowa, called Wrestling with Wolves. I play in a bunch of other bands still. Um, I play bass in a few bands. I uh, play upright bass and uh, a spooky bluegrass band. I play bass in a punk rock band, actually, too, like a two-tone ska punk band. And then I play bass in an alt-country band. And uh, I do solo stuff. And I have a backing band sometimes. And my solo stuff is under Danny Russell Wolf. And when I have people play with me, it's Danny Russell Wolf and the Revolving Doors. But yeah, I just finished up an album. Actually, it's just hopefully going to get sent off to be pressed into vinyl soon. So Danny Wolf is the busiest man alive in music today. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would like to just point out that I remember seeing Danny's band, Small Towns Burn a Little Slower, about a million and a half times in the early 2000s here in uh, in Minneapolis with, uh, they played with everybody. They were really good. They put out a split seven inch with some very good friends of mine who are in a band called The Cardinal Sin. Uh, which was great. So fantastic band. Yeah. Danny and I have sort of like uh, circled each other. It seems like forever. So yeah, it's nice to sit down and chat. I want to backtrack really quick about one thing that you said. You said that you started off singing in choir and also in the car, which I think is really cute because like I did that with my mom and my my friends too. But then at 17, you were just in a punk band. Can you talk about the transition from being in the choir to in a punk band and kind of what that was like and were your parents supportive or were they scared of punk like some parents are <laughs> i didn't sing very much in the choir in church i would do like solos like every every so ah, often okay. they, like they you know have prepared music and i'd just yeah, sing a solo 
but no, my parents were very supportive. Yeah, they didn't care about punk rock. My dad was is a very eclectic fan of music. Even like the day of my first show, I uh, was like, I think it was February of 2009, maybe. My mom let me take that day off of school so I could make merch. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. so that's, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Your parents sound so awesome and supportive. <laughs> they are. Yeah, still. That's the best. Um, okay. Yeah, they used to so, come to a lot of small town shows as well. <laughs> really? Did it ever get like crazy to the point where they're like, where people are like, you know, running around pitting or like, you know, just being crazy at a show and they were in Not attendance? Too awful. Not too awful, but they usually like it was at the Triple Rock most of the time when they came and they were like up and, you know, kind of oh, good. in the back where there wasn't the big crowd and stuff. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> so transitioning from all of that loveliness. Could you explain to us a little bit about why you're joining us today on the pod? Well, um, when I was around five or six, maybe even started earlier, it's hard, you know, hard to keep those memories, uh, in, you know, in order from when you're a kid. My cousin and I would be like in the closet or on the floor at night and she'd be, we'd be like kissing and she, yeah, she'd fall asleep with her hand on my pants and we'd talk about sex and I can't really remember the conversations necessarily but just a lot of that went on for I don't know how long it went on for but so um I believe I was in kindergarten and I was at uh my mom's friend who's babysat me sometimes and uh there was two kids that were like a year younger than me and we were in the closet talking about sex and uh, uh their mom heard it and so she obviously got us out of there and I, yeah, waited for my mom, you know, to get there. And, uh, once, you know, when she got there, of course, uh, her friend told her, you know, what had happened. And, um, my, my mom punished me. I believe that she spanked me. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly what else, uh, I started to compulsively lie to her just about anything like just innocuous things like she'd ask me if I put my clothes away and I'd say yes and she'd say did you put them away right I say yes and all she had to do was go and check and I don't know if it was just for attention or what but uh, I know that it was partially because when the truth came out I was punished I think so that's yeah I started lying now, the, the incident with your cousin, you said you were five or six, and how old was your cousin? She was six or seven, not not much older, maybe a year, year and a half older. I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Did you say it was multiple times that this happened? Yeah. If my parents were doing something or, you know, sometimes he would just go visit my grandma. It was at my grandma's house, and uh, my cousin and her family lived with my grandma at the time, so... We would go there and sometimes it was just, you know, if my parents were going to do something or we would go and visit there. So it seems like, you know, five or six or younger. And then the incident with the other kids in the closet discussing sex happened probably in the next year or so. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, you were on a, on a fast track to growing up very quickly at a very young age, at least in this aspect. Um, did you notice anything else? I don't want to skyrocket through through the ages here, but just kind of as you were growing up, 
did you notice that you were kind of ahead of the curve on some of these things compared to the the other kids around you in the same age or same grade? I feel like I definitely became um, more interested in sex than I, you know, what I noticed of other kids. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know their minds, but I definitely uh, I th I thought about sex a lot. I had urges already, you know, as an elementary student. And that's, you know, that's a pretty normal thing for someone who has gone through something like that at such a young age is no one reacts to assault or abuse or anything like that in the same way. But one of the things that happens is people become hypersexualized after that. And it sounds like that is exactly the reaction that you had to it. I was fortunate in the fact that it was at least someone that was close to my age and not an adult. You know, it's probably would have made it a lot worse. Which is so weird to say, but I totally understand what you mean by that. You know, it's never, you never want something like that to happen to someone. But yeah, I do understand what you mean. Like if it would have been an adult who had maybe a preconceived idea of what they were trying to do. Um, yeah. Or even another child that's not so familiar. Right. I mean, yeah. someone else who, who's gone through something and then is imparting that on someone else. So in regards to these recurring incidences, and you, you talked about how close you are with your family. Did you speak to them about this? If so, when and kind of how did that go? I didn't talk to them much about it until I was, I don't know, mostly I just talked to my mom about it as I was, you know, becoming an adult and a couple of times, you know, since then. And I know that she has said that it's one of her biggest regrets that she punished me because, you know, I didn't know exactly what was happening, but she was just so scared and, you know, it was a new experience for her and she didn't know what to do about it. And that's essentially like the extent of how we really talked about it in regards to my instances. We talked about the why uh, she and her sister were doing these kind of things. And it was because that they were abused by adults and, a friend of their family and um for them like when it went when it came out uh that this was happening their mother just like refused to believe it until and things just got worse especially for the older the cousin that was about four years older than me five years older than me maybe okay so i want to clarify here that it came out that you, your cousin had had been abused which is why there was some sort of understanding again at a very young age of this type of behavior. So there was, there was family abuse on her end and then it kind of seeped over into, into your side of the family with your experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, uh, the, not the cousin that I had experiences with, but the older girl, she had issues where she had yeah, trichotillomania, I believe it's called. She was, you know, she had a you know huge bald spot on her head and, her, she ended up coming to stay with us for a while because things were so bad for her. And then I think maybe eventually they cut that person out of their family or their their friend circle. Honestly, don't know who, who it was. Yeah. For anyone who's not 100% sure, um, trichotillomania is um, when you're compulsively picking at hair, either um, on your head, your eyebrows, somewhere on your body, and you basically pick out of compulsion out of stress out of anxiety out of nervousness and you are usually resulted in like 
medium to large scale bald spots um, you pick until there's nothing left. Um, I did want to go back and clarify one more thing. You said that you had spoken to your mom um, about this and you mentioned kind of briefly that she was upset that she had punished you. Was there a conversation when you were younger about how you knew about sex when you were a kid talking in the closet? I don't fully re remember the conversation, but I definitely know that I told her that it was my cousin. And Okay, so she found out that that was kind of the source issue right after the incident happened with the, the kids in the closet in kindergarten. Yes. Another thing that happened as a, re as a result of that, I would have to fall asleep with my hand down my pants to fall asleep a lot of times. Like a self-soothing mechanism. Yeah. From then on, you know, like, I mean, I don't, I don't do it anymore, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure when I stopped. So as you kind of growing up as, as a teen and then into, you know, your, your early twenties, did you see any sort of behaviors pop up that you think might have been have the incident with your cousin be a catalyst for some of these like relationship based behaviors? I, I definitely believe so. Um, as I was saying earlier that I, definitely became hyper aware of sex and thought about sex a lot. I didn't actually get physical with any girls until I was like 16. But once that started actually happening, I was definitely pursuing any sexual encounter. Not It wasn't, it wasn't always sex, but you know, a sexual encounter. Were these just like one night stand or like one time only hookups? Were you in relationships with people at this time? Some of them were relationships, so they'd be short-lived relationships. Even when I had girlfriends, a lot of times I, you know, if I had the chance, I would, I would cheat on them. When you were in these relationships and also seeking sex outside of that, was it a situation where it was like the excitement of getting more or different? Or is it like, I'm not getting what I'm looking for here. I'm going to keep this going, but also look for something else outside of this. It was about the attention and just, I don't know, being wanted and being, mm -hmm. yeah, being seen and yeah, feeling, feeling attractive, I guess, too. And yeah, I'm definitely still, uh, I, I seek attention still for sure, but you know, in positive <laughs> ways now. Yeah, in a, I was going to say in a more positive, constructive. Yes, much, much more positive. When you were a teenager, obviously what happened to you, you realized that it was weird, but like, was it something where it was like, where you were cognizant of the fact that this sort of pushed you into this hypersexual direction? Or was that something that you sort of figured out later on? I don't think that I actually put those things together until I was about 20 years old. I mean, again, I was like, I don't know if you guys ever remember Makeout Club. Oh, I remember Makeout like Club. A, yeah, I definitely used that a lot. Also, just to, just to point out to people, makeoutclub.com was a very early precursor to social media that was ostensibly a way for touring bands to meet people in other cities and make out with them which is funny because like you don't really need a website to do that you're in a touring band <laughs> like yeah uh, i didn't know it was for 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 touring bands i was not in a touring band that yeah, i just would find people that lived close to me and actually one of the people that I met through Makeout Club, uh, I'm still sort of friends with. I ended up meeting them again later on. That's actually really cool in a way. Well, and that sort of, sorry, not to like derail what you were saying, but um, this sort of ties into our previous conversation with uh, Laura Danger about how 
the sort of duality of like social media can be really great for certain things and you can meet people who become lifelong friends and it can also be this really dark thing also dirty decrepit hellhole yeah totally (laughs) so we're kind of moving through the timeline of you growing up and also dealing with this thing that happened to you and kind of how it was always kind of a back burner issue um especially when it came to relationships with other people and you you said that you didn't really have the hindsight to to look back and kind of see what was going on until you were about 20 21 or so when was it at that time i guess is a better question was it at that time where you started to kind of turn yourself around and it, with that reflection be like okay i need to actively not keep pursuing relationships in this matter absolutely i uh i i'd started to lose friends because I would hook up with girls that friends liked and I would keep stuff secret and they'd find out. And then, you know, my girls that I was date, I was dating would find out that I'd done stuff with other girls. And even like a couple of guys would, every time they'd see me drive through town, they would try and fight me because I made out with one of the guy's girlfriends. I lost a lot of friends and I was living in a house by myself and I couldn't sleep. I was depressed. And I just kind of decided that I needed to figure something out because I didn't want to be like this the rest of my life. I wanted to have like a, an honest and serious relationship. And uh, I was dating this gal and I wasn't happy with her. I don't think she was happy with me either, but I would try to break up with her and she would, uh, you know, threaten to kill herself. And I remember that uh, one of our mutual friends told me later that she was mad that I didn't notice that she was cutting her arm and stuff. Then I, I was visiting a friend in Iowa City, and I, but I met you know my future wife. I guess at the time is what you'd say, and things just clicked. In your like teen years, moving into your twenties, you kind of had the same pattern of dating someone, seeing other people while dating someone and then kind of moving out of that relationship and into the next relationship in which you'd be in the relationship, but kind of reach out and, you know, find someone else and kind of roll that into the next one. And that did happen with this, but you had already kind of come to terms with yourself saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be this person anymore. You were in the relationship with this last person who was threatening to hurt themselves if you broke up and you were kind of coming to this realization of, I need to get out of the state that I'm in, not in the relationship so much as like your mental being of where you are kind of stuck. And then you met your wife and then everything in relationships kind of just evened out from there. Is that correct? That is correct. I uh, I had told my wife that I had a girlfriend that I was trying to break up with. And so then I, you know, I went home and the next week I came back to see her again. And she's like, so what's going on with this? I was like, I took care of it. <laughs> it's over. I decided not too long after I met my wife that I was gonna, I was, that I wanted to marry her. And uh, she had just turned 19. I was 22 at, by this time. I was, I, I, I got a ring. My band was going to play in this bowling alley in Creston, Iowa. And I drove down the night before because my, I was, I was running the PA. My band at the time was opening for the Plain White Tees before the Plain White Tees was anyone. And so I decided I was going to propose to her at this show and my parents even came down. I, my mom took a picture of it when it happened. So yeah, like it was during our set too. I, I like brought a couple of other people on stage just randomly and like asked them, I was like, 
you know, we've been here a few times, you know, about us, but I don't really know about you. And I bring people up and ask them questions. And then I brought my, my wife up on stage. She's like, oh, you know me, right? And she's like, yeah. And I said, so I don't know, do you want to marry me? And she's like, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, awesome. I actually had called her parents too, to ask for permission. Her mom, her mom had asked me, uh, her mom asked me to wait till she was finished with finals, but I was like, I don't, now that I have permission, I, I'm sorry, but I can't wait. <laughs> so you guys married and kind of the, re- the relationship aspect for you, it's slowed down. You're not going through, you don't have the revolving door of people and you're not dealing with that. You've got your wife, you're, you're on stable ground. You've acknowledged that you want to move on from some of this past behaviors. You had mentioned that you started reaching out to some of the people, some of the women that you felt like you had wronged in some way. When did you start doing that? And kind of what was the reasoning why? And tell us a little bit more about the process in general. A lot of the stuff, you know, the stuff with my childhood stuff, I actually, I worked through through a song. And that was like, I was a while after, you know, I was married and stuff too. And I, like, I feel like when I wrote the song, it really made things become crystal clear, like even more so like what I was doing. From the sounds of it, you've done a lot of, self-reflection on your own and sort of done that side of the work have you done any therapy or support group uh stuff with any of this or has it just kind of been like on your own figuring it out uh in that way the last like eight years i have done some counseling but a lot of it wasn't about that i mean a little bit was you know just kind of getting to know my counselor, psychiatrist, or psychologist, I'm not sure which, which therapist was something. Yeah, I have a couple of different doctors. I have one that, you know, medicates me for my almost bipolar. And then I have another one that I would see every so often, like when I was having troubles. And I feel like I worked through a lot of it before I got to that point. I was trying to work through other things like my, you know, my mood swings. And it seems like, and this is kind of one of those things with trauma is that When you start working on one aspect, even if you're on like the North Pole, then stuff starts to shake on the South Pole. So it seems like kind of as you're as you're dealing with or as you were dealing with some of your things and kind of dealing with your your mental health and things were coming to light, you were kind of trying to restructure yourself. Some of this other stuff has already started working itself out just by you acting kind of over here on one side and things kind of started working on the other side, for lack of a better term. (laughs) Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the song that you wrote that seemed to really kind of crack open a lot of this for you. It was uh, right when Small Towns was breaking up that I wrote the song. I was with a friend in, it was the house that the stuff had happened in. My grandma had sold the house and maybe a few different people had lived there. But then my brother later on in life uh, bought this house. And he lived there for a few years and then he was selling it. So it was completely empty. Me and a friend went there and we're like working on recording stuff and writing songs. And he was in one room and I was in another room. And I started to write the song about the stuff that happened and the differences between me and her. And the fact that, you know, I have this uh, very supportive and fantastic family and that, you know, it wasn't the same for her. And so, the band was that I released it under was called Wrestling with Wolves, and the song is called The Perks of Being a Small Flower. Initially, it was called 
the perks of being a small flower in a thistle house because my grandma collected cactuses, but I just shortened it to the perks of being a small flower. But yeah, and that, that really helped me work through it. And I have had a positive response to people that, you know, they didn't necessarily go into details when we would talk about it, but I've had several people be like, you know, this song definitely spoke to me and I understand where you're coming from and I appreciate it. Now I'm no musician and everyone seems to know this because I bring it up. I, I cannot sing worth a shit. And I'm horrified to be on stage. I have terrible stage fright. But I've always wondered, and I'd love to get your take on this, when somebody writes a song that is so deeply emotional and just driven by pure, just just pure emotion and energy, when you end up playing that in front of an audience, how do you keep yourself in control? Because when you're writing it, you're kind of in a process of, taking, because I, I I write, so I understand the writing aspect of lyrics. So I, I know the process of taking what's in your head, having it move down your arm, out through your hand and onto the paper. I get that a hundred percent. But sometimes reading back some of the stuff that I write, even if I'm reading it by myself, I become so overwhelmed. It's almost like you get into like a zone when you're writing and it's like, you don't even really realize what's coming out. And then you read it back and you're like, fuck me. Like, where did that come from? And so I could never really imagine having to perform something so intimate as what you've described here in front of a group of people without just breaking down how do you do that uh partially because it was rehearsed there was times where i felt the song a lot more and i would probably be i would definitely sing it more intense mm -hmm. but i don't recall ever actually like breaking down on the stage but there's definitely times there's a few songs that i've written that are very very personal that you know, sometimes when I listen back to myself, I definitely break down and cry, but I just, I haven't done it on stage, but I definitely do it. Like, you know, songs I've written for my parents and it's mostly songs that I've written for and about my family and stuff. Those are the ones like, cause a lot of times it's gratitude. It's that's when I break down. It's when I so, feel so grateful to have, you know, be supportive parents and, you know, to be able to write positive things about them. That's usually when I, when I break down. This old house is where I learned how to misbehave This floor is the first place I fell asleep with someone else's hands Touching me between my too young and innocent To understand the difference between this and the other games we played So like a disease trying to spread what I see when Sheila Card is in the closet Talking about things we should not know No, no, no So Sheila told my mother of her discovery My mother got so scared that she punished me Years later she said it's one of her biggest regrets we were treading new ground and she didn't know how to deal with it But thankfully, the hands that educated me Were nearly the same age and still had the innocence to claim But it's a goddamn shame that I can't say the
on the front porch I did my junkyard dog And her applause felt enormous Too young and innocent To develop egotism I completed each request Because I was eager to please them On the way home we'd sing In that one station wagon Don't cry down In front of magic dress Down on the fold-out couch, I pretended to sleep. All my cousins killed box elder bugs and watched sleazy movies. Too young but not innocent. I understood the difference between this and my other TV shows. So I still can recall all the images I saw. They were burned in my thoughts and they will not be forgotten soon. But thankfully. Parents that nurtured and encouraged me Made certain that my life would feel worthwhile But it's a goddamn shame that I can't say the same for Christy, please just keep the peace Basically sit back silent and smile While you watch your sister steal She was neither young nor innocent I don't understand how she managed To take advantage of hand over fist And still continue to live in filth Sent her mother to her deathbed With so much credit card debt No visible remorse And of course nothing to fucking show for it But thankfully of a witness to the gifts of love that I've been given. So in this empty house I sit, just guitar, book, and a pen, trying to exercise these demons and hoping some good will come of it. Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, 
booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.